tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Would you turn there in the Old Testament? 2 Samuel chapter number 8. We are in this expositional series uh, through the book of 2 Samuel. We've already journeyed through uh, 1 Samuel. And uh, now we're to 2 Samuel chapter number 8. As I explained this morning, this is our our method of preaching at fellowship. This is what's normative around here. Uh, as we started a new book of the Bible this morning, the book of Acts. And then we preach through 2 Samuel um, like, like we are tonight. And as I told the church this morning, this is healthy for all of us. Because it reminds us that all of the Bible is inspired by God. All of the Bible is profitable. Even the passage of scripture that you come upon in the Old Testament And you're like, man, I wonder why that was written. I don't know what to take out of that. Even those passages of Scripture are inspired by God. Preserved in the canon of Scripture for us today. And and so, Pastor Tanner preached maybe one of the most pivotal chapters in all of Scripture. Not just the Old Testament. In all of Scripture. Last Sunday night, I was able to listen to that message, did a fine job preaching 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we, we read about the Davidic covenant that God made with David. David said, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God said, no, I'm going to build you one. Your son's going to build me a house, but I'm going to, I'm going to start building your house. What he's talking about is I'm going to establish your kingdom, my kingdom through you, I should say. And it's going to go on forever. And that's my promise. David responded by praying this amazing prayer of gratitude and and thanksgiving. Well, now we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And we read this very first phrase of chapter 8 in verse 1. That says, and after this, it came to pass. What is he talking about after this? I believe he's pointing us back. To chapter 7 where God made this promise to David. This covenant with David. So, so if you weren't here last Sunday or even if you were. I want to refresh your memory. We need to read this promise. So go back to chapter 7 would you please. Or it will be on the screen tonight. Verse 8 through 13. Follow along in the Bible. Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I took thee from the sheep coat from following the sheep. To be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was, here's the promise of his presence again. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest. And have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight. And have made thee a great name. Like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place. This is the promise. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. That they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Now, you know, they've been, they've been moving ever since the Exodus. They've been going and conquering all this land, setting up these portable tabernacles and, and, and doing this, just living out of a suitcase type life. God said, that time's done. I'm going to plant you. You're not going to have to move anymore. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did you get that? What a promise that was to David. So, so now the narrator comes to chapter 8 and he says, it came to pass after these things, or it came after this, it came to pass. The narrator, 2 Samuel, is connecting the details of chapter 8 with the covenant promise made in chapter 7. What he's done is, we're going to look at it tonight, he's put this catalog of sorts together, and it's a, it's a catalog, a record of all of David's victories. So, so if I had to title the message tonight, I would title it a kingdom catalog. When I think of a catalog, when you think of a catalog, what do you think of? You know what I think of? I think of the JCPenney catalog. Any 90s kids, 80s and 90s kids that are older? Um, I don't know what you all did in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but when I was a kid... In the 80s and 90s, my mom would give me this thick old catalog. And she would say, you know, look up what you want and circle it. I would never circle socks and underwear, but I would always get them anyway. I don't know what the deal was with that. I would always circle those, those big pow, uh, power, uh, battery-powered vehicles that you get in. I never got one of those, ever. I would circle a bike and cool stuff and... And I would get socks and underwear. It is gross. It is gross. Who said that? Quinn? (laughs) She said, ooh. (laughs) That's awesome, man. At least she's awake. That's good. Doesn't even look like she's listening, but she's hearing me. I like that. I like that. (laughs) Where was I at? Uh, A kingdom catalog. A kingdom catalog. So these are the kind of chapters you read in it and, and, and you look at this one victory after another. It just records this data of David going to battle and winning and David going to battle and winning. And what you need to, rem- to know about this is, is that it's really not chronological. Chapter 8 um, is not recording these battles that happen one after another right after God gave his promise. If you study them, some of them took place before God ever gave his promise. So, so he's not making a chronological list. What he's doing, he's putting together a, kind of, kind of a, a, of a collage, a, a catalog of all these victories. Because you've got to remember that, that, that the people who were in these battles were not the original audience of 2 Samuel. The people who were the original audience of 2 Samuel were exiles years later. That's, that's who this book was originally compiled to serve and, and to minister to and to help and inspire. And, and so this narrator is putting things together in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To serve is kind of like a testimony. A, a reassurance to the original readers of 2 Samuel that God, he indeed did fulfill his promise to David. And in turn, even though they were in exile, he would fulfill his promises to them. It's, it's like they, they have this photo album from years ago. And, and the narrator compiled a big old uh, section of that photo album with all these victories. The scoreboard read, David 100, his enemy zero. And those exiles would have read that and said, oh man, that's awesome. At the time when they felt forsaken by God, they would be reminded by 2 Samuel chapter 8, God is with me. God still fights for me. God is for me. 
I want you to look at a key phrase of chapter eight found in the end of verse six and verse 14, because the narrator gives us a, he kind of gives us a tip, a clue as to what, what his main thought is in this chapter. Look at the end of verse six. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Look at verse 14, the end of verse 14. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. The narrator is revealing the theme of the chapter, and it's simply this. The Lord keeps his promises to his people. God promised David, we read it in chapter 7, I'll preserve you. I'll establish a throne forever. Even after you die, you will see victory in your name. And then we get chapter 8 that shows us all these victories, a catalog of kingdom promises fulfilled. Aren't you thankful tonight that God is a God of his word? When he told David, I'll help you. When he told David, I'll preserve your house. That's exactly what God did. And so I want to study this catalog of sorts tonight. Won't take us long. I want to draw out three truths, three headings that we'll use to move through this text. And each heading will have an application point for us today that we can take home with us. We'll talk about David defeating his enemies. We'll talk about David dedicating his spoils. We'll talk about David dealing with his people. Here's the first heading. David defeats his enemies. Here's what you need to remember how it applies to our lives. We can have confidence that God is fulfilling his word through his people. Now we need to look at David's military activities. We'll get to the text in a moment. In light of God's covenant with Israel. And where did that start? When God first made his covenant with Israel, where did it start? It started with Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And then remember, it moved on to Moses, Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And then it's with David now, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want, I want to show you a map. Here was the promise. The Lord had promised um, Israel, the land, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. So everything within those borders that you see the, the red highlighter there. Um, that, that's the land, the, the, the territory that God had promised. And the Lord was now going to use David to help fulfill that promise. See, if you remember, Israel had lost territory to her enemies during the reign of King Saul. And now David has worked hard with the help of God to recapture it. And then he also expanded Israel's borders and acquired land that had been conquered in Joshua's day. On top of that, he established treaties. With most of these nations and set up troops in their lands, or our text calls them garrisons, uh, to maintain Israel's authority. Much of what we did for a long time in the Middle East. Now I want you to notice in our text, I won't go through every name and all of that. I, I just want to highlight how the narrator detailed David's victories. He's going to point to the fact, he's going to prove God promised to preserve him, and he told him he preserved him whithersoever he went. And I'm going to show you that literally on every side, God protected him. Okay? From the west, God protected him from the Philistines. Look at verse 1. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. David, uh, uh, and David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Philistines were this, this chronic enemy, right? This pest. David's been dealing with for a long time. Well, they're from the West. God helped them defeat the Philistines, not just defeat them, but subdue them. That's an even stronger term. It's dominating them. But then look at verse two. And he smote Moab. Now this is David's enemies from the East. 
You just study it yourself. I'm going to give you just enough to where you can, you can take it and you can run with it when you get home. From the west, God protect them. From the east, God preserve them. Then you can study verse 3 through 13, where David defeated the uh, Arameans and, and the Syrians. And those are his enemies from the north. So we got, we got the Philistines from the west. We got the Moabites from the east. We got the Syrians from the north. And then verse 14, uh, it says that he put garrisons or troops in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons and all they of Edom became David's servants. Edom, uh, the Edomites were, 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 were David's enemies from the south. Are, are, are you getting what the narrator's doing? He's proving the fact. He's given a catalog of victories to show you. The end of verse 6 and the end of verse 14 is absolutely correct. God has preserved David whithersoever he went. From the north and the south and the east to the west. It doesn't matter where you were. If you messed with David, you were dumb. You weren't just dumb, you were done. The point is that God was faithful to his word and he was faithful to his people. Now, we aren't fighting physical wars in liberal Kansas today necessarily. We're not believing God's promise for land and for our kingdom to be established. But listen, there are some kingdom promises that apply to us today. And just like David, we can be confident that God will keep his promises to us. I'll give you a few. One is God has made a a, a kingdom promise to his church. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I say also unto thee, if thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The very means through which God will uh, uh, not just establish, but, but expand his kingdom in the earth is through the New Testament church. We're studying the book of Acts. The, the disciples said, your kingdom's coming right now, isn't it? And, and Jesus looked at them and said, no, my kingdom's just begun. I'm going to use you to spread my kingdom out, to expand my kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's the good news. Fellowship Baptist Church is a part of God's kingdom plan. We get to claim God's kingdom promises that he will build our church, that he will preserve our church and he'll protect our church as we keep him first and preeminent. This, this promise to the church was obviously fulfilled with the early church. We studied Acts chapter eight, verse one this morning. I referenced that even though there was persecution with that first church in Jerusalem, that persecution, what, what Satan meant to totally just destroy the church, actually did the opposite and it propelled the church to Judea and Samaria where other churches were started? That is God's way of fulfilling his promise. The gates of hell did not prevail against them. You can study the life of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. He was beaten. He was in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was all but martyred. Yet the gates of hell did not destroy his efforts to plant churches and reach souls with the gospel. Even to this day, people will say, oh, the church is dying. Christianity, it's fading away. I got good news for you. The church is alive and well. We can be confident that no matter how bad this world gets, God will stay faithful to his word to preserve his bride, his church, and use it for his glory. God's also made a promise that he will eventually bring his kingdom in once and for all. We sang about it tonight. Look at these verses. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Why? Because the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Heaven's real. I said, heaven's real. All things will be made right. All things will be made new. There will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. God will keep his word. God's also made a promise that his children can live in victory right now. Like David, we face enemies that are after God's territory in our lives. Enemies like our flesh and the world and the devil. But God has declared us dead to those enemies if we're alive in Christ. How do I know? Romans 6. This is an amazing passage of scripture. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth, we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Somebody say amen to that. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, this is to us, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is an amazing promise. There are times I know when the pull of your flesh and the pull of the world and the pull of the devil is so strong that it's hard for you to believe that you're dead to it. But if you're a child of God, hear me, you are. God said you are. That doesn't mean that you won't feel sin's presence any longer. You won't feel sin's pull in your life. But you don't have to live under sin's power any longer. If God said you're dead to it, that means you're dead to it. You can live in victory over your enemies because God is faithful to his word. Amen? See, David defeated his enemies with the help of God, which teaches us that we can be confident that God is fulfilling his promises to us as well. Look at verses 9 through 11. When toy, you could, I, I like calling them toy, but it might be toy or Toya or Toei, or I don't know if he's Asian or what's going on, but I call him toy because it's the original toy story in the Bible. <laughs> like that. King of Hamath heard that David had smitten all the host of uh, Hadad Ezer. You, I, I like calling this guy Hey Dad, or he probably wears Hey Dude shoes for sure. Um, anyway, that's, that's pretty weak. Uh, verse 10. Then Toy sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him and to bless him. Because he had fought against uh, Hadad Ezer and smitten him. Hadad Ezer had wars with Tor and Joram brought him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass. Now watch here. Which also King David, verse 11. All this spoils of war. And I could have mentioned more in the above verses. All this spoil of war, David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations, which he subdued. Point two, David dedicates his spoils. Here's what we learn from it. We can honor God by giving our increase back to him. 
See, most kings in this situation would have kept all these spoils and all this increase for themselves. David could have. He had a big cedar house. Tanner probably talked about it last week. A big cedar house, big enough to hold all these possessions. He could have rode off into the sunset, retired for good. But he didn't. Here's why. Get this. David realized none of it was his to begin with. He did not preserve himself in battle. God preserved him in battle. If it wasn't for God's protection, David wouldn't have had any of these spoils. He wouldn't have enjoyed any of these victories. See, David viewed himself as a steward of these things, not as an owner of these things. We would do well to see ourselves the same way. Every single thing that we have belongs to God. We are never called owners in the Bible. Not one time. We're called stewards. We're called managers in the Bible. There's a huge difference. When we went to California in July, my family to preach a youth camp and be there for 10 or 11 days. Uh, I asked Pastor Tanner to take care of my truck for me while I was gone for 10 days or so. When I came back, I said, hey, I'm going to text you and let you know, here's when I'm coming back to the airport. We flew back into Liberal and I want you to be there to pick me up. Sure enough, we, we come rolling out of the, the airport with, well, as soon as we made it through all the terminal traffic and all that, um, we, uh, we came rolling with our suitcase and he's out there with my pickup truck and waiting for us. You know that, that Pastor Tanner didn't make me pry the keys out of his hand? He didn't say, hey, you get in the back seat. I'm used to driving this now. No, he didn't do that. He got in the back seat, gave me my keys. Why? He just was managing my vehicle for me. I gave it to him for a little bit, but he knew he didn't own it. That's exactly how we should view ourselves in the kingdom of God. Not as as people that, that... own these things, but as people that have been entrusted by God to steward or manage these things. That's how David saw himself as the king of Israel, not as an owner, but as a steward. He knew everything belongs to God. So what are we to manage that belongs to God? Well, we ought to manage our money wisely. God has given every one of us in here an increase of money. Some have more than others, but everyone has some. Proverbs 9, or 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. One way you can honor God with your money is putting Him first with it. Don't give God what's left over. According to Scripture, that's not wise. Give God what's, what's His right off the top. If you view yourself as a steward of God's money and not an owner of God's money, you'll have less of a problem giving back to God what already belongs to Him. He won't have to pry an honest tithe out of your hand. He won't have to pry a generous offering out of your hand. You'll gladly give it. You'll generously give it when you realize it's His to begin with. You're just managing it for Him and for His glory. You ought to manage your talent wisely. Every one of us had gifts and abilities that God's given us to use for his kingdom. In fact, Romans 6 or 12 speaks to this. So, so we, Paul says, being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Watch here. Between your personal passions, your life experience, your talents, 
and what others affirm in you, you'll find your God-given gift. Something I'm talking about that God has given to you to use for his glory and the good of his people. If you aren't giving that gift, that ability back to the Lord, you aren't honoring God. It's that simple. If your workplace gets your talent, if your school gets your talent, if your community gets your talent, but God doesn't get your talent, there's a problem. The first person that ought to get your God-given gift is the person who gave it to you in the first place. You know what else you ought to manage wisely? You ought to manage your time. See, time is different than money. It's different than talent. Money, some people have a lot, some people have a little. Talent, some people have a lot, some people have a little. Time, everybody's on equal ground. We all have the same amount of it. Which is why Paul said in Ephesians 5, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Psalmist wrote in Psalms 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Listen, time is a precious gift that God has given us and we can honor him by using it wisely. Can I give you just a couple things to write down tonight about time? Something that God has taught me in the last few years that has helped me dramatically steward my time better. I know this sounds really simple, but write this down. Plan well. How many are planners by, by nature? You're planners. Raise your hand. Man, I envy you. I'm not a planner. But guess what I've had to become? A planner. Just because I'm not a planner by personality doesn't mean that I have an excuse to not be a planner. I've had to learn that, that if I'm going to manage a staff, I'm going to manage a growing ministry, and I'm going to be a good steward of my time with my family, that I'm going to have to learn how to plan well. And you need to learn how to plan well. Even if you're not the administrative type, you need to pray this prayer. God, teach me. Teach me to number my days that I might apply my heart unto wisdom. Let me give you another one. Don't procrastinate. I need more amens right there. <laughs> Our oh I, I I do think that that procrastination is a terrible habit. I really do. I don't think that there's an excuse for it because of your personality. I hear so many people say, well, I'm just a procrastinator as if it's not a bad thing. It's a terrible thing. We all struggle with it in some way or some form. We procrastinate saying what we need to say, procrastinate doing what we need to do, procrastinate making the decision we need to make, whatever the case might be. The bottom line is learn to not procrastinate every minute, every hour, every day, every week that you procrastinate what God's told you to do. You are not managing your time wisely. Stop procrastinating. Get out of the habit of pushing things to the side. That is a terrible way to live life because eventually your procrastination becomes somebody else's emergency. That's not wise. Can I give you another one that I'm real passionate about? Create margin. Create margin. You know what margin is? It's space. It's it's free time. We're given the principle of Sabbath all throughout Scripture. The principle of rest. When you plan your week, is there any time, any space for you just to rest and enjoy life? Any time? There needs to be. There needs to be margin. Even those of us that are incredibly busy, we've got to intentionally plan for space or else we'll get overwhelmed. We were not created to go 24-7, seven days a week, which is why God 
He, he, he exemplified this day of rest for us in creation. And he gave it to us in the Old Testament. And then he even let the principle continue in the New Testament. Okay, let me give you another one that I'm working on right now in my life. If I want to steward my time wisely, be present. Learn to be present. Somebody in our connection group talked this morning about something they need help with. And so when they pray, God, give me my daily bread there, they said that they are praying for, for God to help them to, to not look forward a year or two or three or four or five, not to be so future oriented that they miss out on the events of the day in which they're living. Make sure that if you want to steward your time wisely, you realize that you're not getting ahead of the clock. You're not, you're not looking forward to the vacation to where at work you clock out and at church you clock out for two weeks leading up to the vacation. Don't skip a single minute God's given you to live. Don't be unpresent during a single conversation that God has divinely appointed. Don't be distracted during a single sermon. Don't, don't, don't be distracted during a single worship song. Not a single one. When your kids come and tug on on your skirt or or on your pants and say, Daddy or Mommy, you don't have to always let them interrupt. But be mindful that you only have 18 years of them pulling on your skirt. Be present. Be present. David's defeated his enemies with the help of the Lord. Teaches us we can count on the Lord to help us as well. David has dedicated his spoils to the Lord, which teaches us that we can honor God by giving him our increase. Let's talk about one more and we'll be done. Verse 15. And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Heading three, David deals justly with his people. Here's our application. We can reflect the character of God in how we deal with others. See, verse 15 says, David executed judgment and justice. Our English translation, it has two words there. In the Hebrew language, it would have read something like this. David executed just judgment. So it appears to be two different things in our translation, but it's really one idea in Hebrew. It just simply means that David was righteous in how he dealt with his people. And I love this. It wasn't just some of his people. He showed equity. Verse 15 says he dealt justly with all his people. At least during this time in Israel, David got it right. There was truly liberty and justice for all. Now, usually when kings rose to power and prominence and experienced victories like David did, they became corrupt. King Saul did. He started as a man that was small in his own eyes. But after he experienced power and success, he became a terrible and a cruel leader. But not David. David was a man after God's own heart. He reflected God's character and how he dealt with God's people. He didn't always get it right, but here he did. I think sometimes, as children of God, we compartmentalize our Christian life. We have a relationship with God box. And then we have a relationship with others box. On Sundays, we're going to sing and we're going to worship and we're going to serve and we're going to give and we're going to be kind. But on Monday, we're a totally different person. Because the people we interact with at work, we deal with on a regular basis, they get a totally different version than our church gets on Sunday. 
That's not how God sees our relationships. In fact, God ties together our relationship with him and our relationship with others. Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He puts the two together. First John chapter four. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. To Jesus, it's all in the same basket. Are you hearing me, men? You can't be the hero at work and the villain at home. Same with you, ladies. Can't be the hero at church and the villain at home. God says, no, no, your relationship vertically and horizontally, those are all the same to me. So I want to ask you, does the way you deal with other people reflect the character of God? God is kind, are you? God is patient, are you? God is forgiving, are you? God is forbearing, are you? God is gracious, are you? God is just, are you? God is fair, are you? God is generous, are you? And let me add something else to that question. Are you those things to all people? Are you kind toward your co-workers but mean toward your spouse? Are you patient with your students but impatient with your own kids? Are you fair to your customers but unfair to your enemies? Are you generous to your family but stingy toward your church? Are you gracious with those to whom you agree but harsh toward those that see things differently than you? If we're going to reflect God's character in our dealings with people, just like David did, We're going to have to be consistent with how we treat everyone who God has placed in our life. Everyone who's God's placed in our life. So in summary, hear me and I'm done. This kingdom catalog shows us all these victories that God won for David. How he is faithful to his promises, preserved him whithersoever he went. And then it shows us two ways that David responded to God's faithfulness. He honored him by giving back what was his. And he honored him by dealing justly with God's people. Now let me bring this home. I bet if if I made all of us stop right now, take out a piece of paper, take out a pen, and spend the remainder of our time, 10, 15 minutes, writing down all the ways in which God has been faithful to us. All the victories he's helped us to win. All the ways in which he's provided, protected, and preserved us. I bet you all of us could have a catalog of our own. And Jacob and Michaela defeated this. And Kelby defeated this. And Linda defeated this. And Norma Jean defeated this. And Karen defeated this. And Donna defeated this. And Kevin defeated this. And Jenny defeated this. And Virginia defeated this. And Elena defeated this and chase defeated this and kylie defeated this and taryn defeated this and brent and colleen they defeated this and wes we listen are you getting this we could literally unroll a chapter eight of our own and we could sum up what god's done for us in the same way the narrator did god has preserved us whithersoever we went But you know what's better 
than even writing those things down and talking about them would be for us to purpose in our hearts that we're going to respond to God's faithfulness in our life the same way David did. God, I'm going to give my increase back to you because you've preserved me. It's yours. And God, I'm going to treat those around me justly because they're your people created in your image. And I'm going to reflect your character and how I deal with them because that is a way of honoring you for your faithfulness in my life. God's preserved you. Now you honor him. So here's what I want to do. I want the band to come. Would you do that? I want us to close with with a couple of things. I I want us to spend some time as the instruments play uh, praying. As always, you can pray where you are. You can come to an altar tonight. I want you to have this invisible catalog of your own. I want you just to think of three or four or five ways right now in your mind. Okay, don't be lazy. Think with me. Three, four or five ways where if I called on you right now, you could, you could start saying them. Five things God's done in your life to preserve you, to provide for you, to protect you, to put you on the winning side. How's he done that? Has there been an enemy, the flesh, the world, the devil he's helped you destroy lately? Has there been an addiction that's in your past and it stayed in your past? Have you been saved by his grace? Has he put your marriage back together? Has he taken it to a whole new level? Has he given you a child you never thought you'd have? Has he given you joy? Or given you back joy that you thought you lost forever? What's he done for you? And when's the last time you just said, God, thank you for that. Thank you for being faithful to me. No, I know that you could also write a catalog full of things that probably aren't right. I get that. We all carry burdens. We all have things in our life that are right in the center of our brains right now and and probably weigh heavy on our hearts. But I'm asking you to put that aside for a second. To thank God for his faithfulness. To thank him for it, you got to see it first. The narrator, he gave specific things. I want you to think of specific things and I want us to worship the Lord with gratitude tonight. Say thank you. When we're done doing that, we're going to sing a couple stanzas of that awesome hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, your mercies are new. And when we sing that, I don't want us to sing it like we've sung it a million times. I want us to sing it like it's the first time. And like it's our way of going out on the Lord's day, declaring he is faithful. And great is his faithfulness. Would you stand?